Professor Brasher discusses judicial sentencing disparities and reform. This is The Legal Impact, the weekly podcast presented by the University of New Hampshire Franklin Pierce School of Law. Now accepting applications for JD, graduate programs, and online professional certificates. Learn more and apply at law.unh.edu. Opinions discussed are solely the opinion of the faculty host and do not constitute legal advice or necessarily represent the official views of the University of New Hampshire. So I came across an article on cleveland.com, which I'll put in the episode description for anyone that actually wants to check out the full article. Uh, with, it had a headline that said, quote, white woman who stole $250,000 gets probation while black woman who stole $40,000 goes to jail. Disparate sentences spark calls for reform, end quote. My media skepticism mode engaged, but there are some serious disparities when it, in how these cases were sentenced, uh, where a white woman who stole more money was sentenced to two years of probation, while a black woman who stole considerably less was sentenced to 18 months in jail. Uh, Buzz, before we dive into how disparities can happen or, or be addressed, how does the sentencing process work in most situations? Well, once somebody is pleads guilty or is found guilty, sentencing happens in the end result sentence comes about in two different ways. One, it could be the result of a plea bargain. So you can uh, negotiate a plea bargain with the prosecutor. And the way a plea bargain works is you agree on a sentence and then you go before the judge, you plead guilty. And uh, then the judge has the freedom to sentence you to whatever they think you should get as a sentence. But if it's higher than the plea bargain, then the defendant can withdraw their guilty plea and go to trial. So that's really the uh, the effect of a plea bargain. And in some jurisdictions, if it's lower than the was negotiated for, uh, the prosecutor can withdraw the plea bargain and the case goes to trial. So that's the first way. The huge majority of cases, that's the way sentencing occurs. But if you're found guilty after a trial or if you plead guilty without any promise of a recommendation uh, by the prosecutor that is a plea bargain, then the judge has complete discretion to sentence you to whatever they want to. Subject to that jurisdiction's sentencing, that jurisdiction may have sentencing rules like the federal system has what's called the sentencing guidelines. And, and we'll come back to those at some point. But so that's basically how sentencing occurs. And at a sentencing hearing, you know, defense lawyer, the prosecutor makes their recommendation for a sentence. The defense lawyer makes their recommendation for a sentence. Witnesses may be called. There'll be, in most jurisdictions, there'll be input from the victim. Then the judge makes up their mind. So it's a very complex set of uh, circumstances on a lot of cases where it's a mix of judicial discretion and then plea agreements and just how the like what the actual crime was seems to to have yeah, a significant impact. Very much so. And you know what's interesting about plea agreements is in, in thinking about what we're thinking about talking about today. Plea agreements reflect an agreement of the two lawyers, the defense lawyer and the prosecutor, who know more than anyone else other than the defendant and the victim uh, about the case, right? Um, Whereas, and and so that's, a plea agreement is reflective of that. It's really tailored to that specific case. And the tailoring is done by those who know a lot about the case. When you have an open sentencing hearing, 
the one who's making the final decision for all purposes is somebody who only knows what they learn, the judge who only knows what they learn from what the prosecutor and the defense lawyer choose to put in front of the judge. And that tends to be a one or two day event. Most often, most sentencing hearings like that are less than two hours. Um, you know, every so often you have these really long sentencing hearings. But the huge majority of sentencing hearings are, uh, are relatively short. So the judge is making up their mind they get a lot of information. They may get a pre-sentence investigation report from the probation officer or social services office, uh, but they don't have, you know, they don't have the time to spend much more than in the ideal world, reading all the documents, listening to all the witnesses, two or three hours to make the decision, unlike with a plea agreement. So, it, uh, it it's subject to that the vagaries of that process. And with the plea agreement, there's an inherent issue where they could th there's the risk of the book being thrown at them, and they're afraid of if I just go to sent go to sentencing without having the plea agreement, I'm going to go to jail or pay a lot more money than I was initially going to do in fines. Right. I mean, you know, the, the fundamental dynamic in, in negotiating a plea agreement uh, for a criminal defendant is how likely do I think, how do, likely do I think it is that I will be acquitted if I go to trial, number one. Number two, if I'm not acquitted, what kind of sentence does my lawyer predict I'll get from a, a judge or a specific judge? Sometimes you know the specific judge, sometimes it's kind of a, uh, a random event which judge you get. And then number three, how does all of that compare to, you know, is it worth taking a plea agreement because I'm pretty sure I'm going to be convicted at trial and what they're offering is less than what I think I'd get if I'm convicted versus, you know, I got a 50-50 shot of going to trial. The plea offer is I'm going to have to do jail time, which will wreck my life but it's certainly better than if uh, the jury goes with the guilty part of 50-50. I mean, those are complex, multi-layered, really difficult decisions. And I've spent hours and hours and hours talking to clients in, when I was a public defender uh, making those decisions. And, and there's not a right, the right decision is what's right for the client. It's not as if the lawyer, except at the extremes, is ever gonna say to a client, um, you'd be nuts if you didn't take this plea bargain um, or you'd be nuts if you don't go to trial. I mean, you know, the, the second you'd be nuts if you don't go to trial, most lawyers never say that to their client because it's their, they, the client gets to go to jail if, if they lose. Yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, and uh, you'd be nuts if you don't take this plea agreement. Lawyers sometimes, defense lawyers sometimes say that because, uh you know, the evidence is so strong and they know who the judge is who's going to do the sentencing and they're definitely going to get more time than the plea bargain that's been negotiated. But that's the client's choice. It's not the lawyer's choice. Uh, and, you know, being a good defense lawyer, I know we're kind of going off a little bit, but being a good defense lawyer is being a good counselor and helping your client 
maybe for once in their life, make a, a, a good decision based on the best incomplete information you can acquire. Yeah. So that's the background of how people get to sentencing, which matters tremendously. What are some ways that jurisdictions, uh, either rules or training they do for judges and attorneys to make sure that it, it, there's some level of equality when it comes to how sentencing happens? Like, obviously, there's going to vary widely from case to case. It's going to vary mm -hmm. widely based on the evidence in the specific case. But how, what are some ways that jurisdictions kind of prevent it from being too disparate from case to case? Uh, there's uh, there's a wide variety around the country. There's a few jurisdic jurisdictions where the jury does sentencing. Um, there is, uh, certainly in all capital cases, the jury does the sentencing. Um, and their choice is really life without parole or uh, uh, executing uh, the defendant. So that's the kind of most uh, extreme version of one part of sentencing. Um, in some jurisdictions like federal courts, courts in the federal system, uh, many years ago, a few decades ago, the federal got sentencing guidelines were implemented. The sentence, the federal sentencing commission met and developed a set of criteria related to sentencing and gave, you know, weight to each of those criteria and then built it into a grid. Uh, which you plug the criteria in, ranging from cooperating with the police, violence in the crime, prior conviction. I mean, there's a lot of them. Um, and the, the, the guidelines would spit out a range of sentences. And then the judge must sentence within that range unless the judge could articulate very clearly a reason for what's called an upward departure, sentencing someone to more prison time than the range, the guidelines range uh, suggested, um, or a downward departure, sentencing someone, sentencing someone to less. So that that's a, the, one of the more strict versions of it, and varied from the nature of the crime. I mean, there's a, a ton of the factors: age of the defendant, um, um, restitution issues. Um, over time, judges began to hate, federal judges began to hate the sentencing guidelines. Um, and it was, uh, uh, it, it really gave them very, very little discretion. Uh, and eventually, uh, through litigation, I'm going to try and simplify this. Uh, eventually, through litigation, the sentencing guidelines became non-mandatory. Hmm. They, they became guidelines like they were originally yeah. entitled. Um, and it loosened it up a while. But, you know, when the guidelines were mandatory, um, there were a good number of federal judges who said, I'm resigning my position as a federal judge, which wow. is a high status position because yeah. these guidelines have made a mockery of the system. You know, we need, we need individual attention to the circumstances of a particular case. In every case, we can't have uh, a template for the way we sentence. And which brings us to 
the uh, you know the two poles of sentencing, giving the judge complete discretion, because more so than a set of guidelines by a committee, or a set you know an al- or more so than an algorithm. Um, you know, we it's it, it, you get better sentences more attuned to the individual circumstances, be it the plight of the victim, the nature of the crime, be it the plight of the defendant, et cetera, his, his life story, you know, either way, we, uh, we want the judge to have as much discretion as possible versus, you know, a push for some version of sentencing guidelines. And there's many states with lighter versions of sentencing guidelines than the original federal sentencing guidelines. You know, this type of crime, the range is X, Y, and Z. Um, and then the judges can decide what factors are important. You know, it varies around the country. But those are the two poles, complete discretion and rigid algorithmic sentencing. Uh, and, you know, you can appreciate algorithmic sentencing gets you consistency. Uh, complete discretion gets you individuation. And and sometimes, are, that's, and sometimes that's, that's very the, important. And sometimes yeah. that's a very important thing. Like someone just, unfortunately, some a bunch of circumstances led to someone making a very terrible mistake, and the judge doesn't necessarily want them to just throw away their whole life because of something that happened that may or may not have been directly their fault. Yeah, and you know, you effectively make the point that both of those things are important relative consistency in sentencing. We don't like wildly different sentences like this case we're talking about yeah. in strikingly similar circumstances uh, that beg for the conclusion that uh, race was involved, racism was involved, either conscious or unconscious. Um, so you want a measure of consistency and you want individuation. Building a system that gives you both, that's the hard thing to do. Yeah, yeah. there's no like objective way to say across the board we have fixed this problem. This this problem is totally gone. No matter what, even if if you have the best rules, you got to be able to have the appeals process and stuff like that to make sure, and and just a, a magnifying glass to make sure on the cases and sentencing to make sure things are going at least as well as possible for equality across the board. Now what? Uh what they're doing in this case, in the courts, in this case, you know, they were talking about uh, setting up a system with all the judges in that particular county um, where all their, the judges would fill out a form after they did sentencing um, that identified like 40 factors and then identified their sentence and they'd send it into a central database and all those forms and all those uh, sentences uh, would get entered into the database and the, the, it would be a publicly accessible database. It wouldn't require the judge to sentence a particular individual to the same sentence somebody else got, but it would make public, both to the public and the media, and to the other judges, hey, you know, Judge Kirstead gave this sentence in a pretty similar set of circumstances, and I'm Judge Sure, you know, 
there is some value in having consistency. It would still be within the judge's power to decide how valuable valuable it would be to have consistency, um, but um, it would at least make more transparent what was going on. And that's not a bad system. In the article uh, that you spoke of, it's a voluntary system hmm. in Ohio. And that, that would be greatly helpful just my, wear my IT hat maybe for a second from a data perspective to be able to look at uh, tons of cases and say, hey, overall, this is how judges are ruling on this sort of uh, case. Or if they're able to dive in deeper into demographics and such to make sure that there isn't a – in a certain courthouse, they're consistently acting a certain way towards certain people of different races or age or sexuality or anything of that nature. Yeah, and um, uh, we know indirectly that there may be sentencing disparities based on race and ethnicity because, for example, in the New Hampshire state prison, there's a disproportionate number of people of color uh, in the state prison. We don't know whether that's a function of the kinds of racial disparities in the kinds of people that the police arrest and charge. We don't know if it's racial disparities in the kinds of people, the nature of the plea bargains offered to people of color versus uh, white people. We don't know if it's racial disparity in the nature of the judge's sentencing. It's likely I mean, each of those feeds on the other, you know, who the people police arrest feeds on who the prosecutor charges and how they negotiate a plea and the information they have. Same with the judge. But the problem in New Hampshire is since the court system doesn't do data collection, since prosecutors offices don't do data collection, since the police don't do data collection, um, we don't know what the origins of that disparity in the num uh, between people of color and uh, all white people in the New Hampshire State Prison. And this theme is runs throughout the country. I mean, this data that there's racial disparities in who is in prison uh, and in jails is uh, uh, is nationwide. And it goes a step deeper than that than even just within the legal system. I mean, if you can signify within a certain community that there's a extreme amount of uh, violent crime happening in a certain community, if you're able to track down whether it's due to uh, financial situations there, if there's outside influences that are that are having an impact on them, whether it's economic, family, if it's the school districts are just allowing horrible things to happen that lead people down a life of crime. It's, 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 to have that data would be integral to making widespread change of any sort. Yeah, and figuring out what that change is going to be. Yeah. Uh, it's really important. I mean, an, 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 a, a, a useful uh, addition to this conversation is there's a good bit of research out there that makes pretty clear that people of color do not commit crimes more frequently or disproportionately as compared to uh, white people. Um, you know, uh, many people uh, quickly, when, when you tell them that there's racial disparities in 
who's in state prison, they say, oh, well, that's because people of color commit crimes more frequently. There's no data that suggests that that's the case. All the data suggests otherwise. Um, but yeah, you know, the root of not the only solution to sentencing issues like this, but the, the uh, you know, the root of making changes that work and are effective is data collection. Now I'm talking like an IT nerd, right? Good. Brainwashing you. <laughs> All right. Is, is there anything else on this that, that we missed? Um, yeah. Let me add one more thing. Yeah. Um, the prosecutor who gave the uh, Freudian slip, the judge who gave the um, uh, the jail sentence, the 18 month jail sentence, had just one election. He had been a prosecutor before that. And in in Ohio, they elect judges. So those are two factors that also affect sentencing. Um, you know, one, what's your background? Have you always been a prosecutor? That inclines you to think about cases uh, differently than have you always been a defense lawyer or have you been a corporate lawyer or have you been a wills, trust, and estates lawyer? Yeah. So, you know, that, and if you're already a judge and you're running for reelection to say, I've been tough on crime, I've been sentencing all these people to the maximum to make sure we weed out criminals, for example, is, is a common yeah. political line. So it's a um, um, those two factors, judges who are in jurisdictions where they're elected and they have to run uh, and the background of the judge make a difference. Oddly enough. Uh, when this judge who sentenced the uh, black woman to 18 months in jail uh, was running, he apparently had a lot of support from the black community. Hmm. Past times. So, you know, it's, it's easy. Uh, it's easy to figure out exactly what happened in this case. Clearly what happened in the end seems quite unfair. You know, to my thinking, given my background as a former public defender and someone who does not see uh, the, the value of lengthy jail or prison sentences in fixing uh, what, what may ail a person, uh, given my background, you know, I think the person who got the 18 months shouldn't have gotten any time, should have gotten probation. Whereas other people uh, of a different ilk say, well, we should give the person who got no time, we should give her 18 months. You know, uh, it's uh, the issue of what's fair can go both ways in that circumstance. So uh, it, with the sentencing, we go back to the enduring proposition that life is not simple. Thanks for listening to The Legal Impact, presented by UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. To help spread word about the show, please be sure to subscribe and comment on your favorite podcast platform, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify.